0: Revelation chapter 2, we'll look at verses 18 uh, through 19 this morning. One of the statements that you hear us say constantly here at Integrity Church is uh, this statement. We say, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Uh, What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. The reason why we make this statement is because we believe that uh, how you view God impacts every area in your life, whether you know that or not. Uh, whether you believe in theology, you have a theology. Everyone in this room has a theology. Some of you have a certain type of theology, and that's okay. But if, even if you don't believe in God, you have a theology. Your theology is that you don't believe in God, but that in and of itself is a theology because your theology says that God doesn't exist, but it's still a belief about God. Uh, But your theology, whether you know it or not, shapes your life. It shapes the way that you treat others. It shapes the way you spend your money. It shapes the way you see morality. It shapes the way you vote and your understanding of views like uh, abortion or race or sexuality. Even practical things like marriage, raising children, and the list goes on. Your theology, what you believe about God, impacts everything in your life. You really don't do anything or make any big decisions that doesn't somehow reflect your view of God. And the tragedy is many of us don't spend time thinking about our view of God. Many of us don't think of ways to uh, strengthen or help better shape our view of God. And therefore, uh, what happens when we do that is our life becomes unstable. The the Bible talks about this a lot in the New Testament. We see it in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul is talking about uh, the kind of church he wants to see in in Ephesus. And he says, the kind of church he wants to see in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12, he says, is to one that equips the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. And he says, until we obtain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. See what he's saying? I want him to have knowledge, the Son of God, to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why does he want all those things? Here's why. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See what he's saying? If you have a solid, biblical, grounded foundation, your life won't be in turmoil. James says the same thing. James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. Doubting what? The word of God, of course. That's what he's saying. For the one who doubts is like a wave that, of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, that the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord he is double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. What is he trying to say? The same thing that Paul's trying to say. You have to have a foundation that's grounded in the word of God, grounded in sound doctrine, sound theology, what scripture says about who God is. You have to have a foundation. And if you don't, he says you're going to be like like as he as the language that both Paul and James use is you're going to be like out to sea, blown, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If you've been seasick before, you understand that. I've been seasick twice in my life. Once, I've told the story before of me. I got, the first time I got seasick, I was on a kayak. I won't even tell you that story because it's too embarrassing. The second time was I was fishing with my son, Finn, and we went out offshore to catch some red drum. And here we are, we're out there. And then on the way, in, out, on the way out, the the waves are just crashing as we're going over these waves. And then I look over and Finn's eyes were starting to daze. And then we make eye contact and he said something to me, but I swear he sounded like this. Like I didn't even hear him. And I started to feel sick. And then we get there and then the waves are pulling, the the boat's turning and going upside. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, Finn, there's just no, I'm not going to be able to, buddy, I'm just going to have to sit down. And I'm like, are you going to be able to do this? He's like, yeah, I can do it. so then something catches his line. He starts to get up. He starts to pull. And then the other guys that are there are trying to help Finn pull this fish in. And we pull in this big red drum, you know, 38 inches or something like that. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, good job, buddy. And then he he runs over. I'm laying on the floor at this point. He runs over to me. (laughs) I hug him. Good job. And then we both make eye contact and we both, at the same time, right over the edge of the boat. And then the rest of the time, we were just laying on the ground and one of the other guys, the sweetest guy, came over and prayed for us because it was just that bad. And I was just like, man, if there's any way that Jesus comes back now, I will be completely fine with it. (laughs) If you've been seasick, it's awful it's terrible. You can't do anything. You just want to jump off and just get eaten by a shark. I mean, it's terrible. (laughs) But that is how I felt. And this is what the language of scripture. I want you to see the urgency here. He's like, man, if you don't have sound doctrine, you're seasick your whole life. You're, You're blown away. By every wind, everything that comes at you, every idea or philosophy that comes at you and you buy into it and you buy into this emotion, or you buy into this uh, philosophy. You, you end up being one who's thrown by every wind of doctrine and you're unstable. And James says you're unstable in all of your ways. And so I've seen this in my life. People that never really cling to scripture I see people that, man, they, they become believers that are young and they start getting excited about it, but they, they maybe like run to like signs and wonders or miracles and they focus on that, but not scripture. And they don't found they don't have a foundation of scripture. And so what happens when suffering comes, difficulties come, they fall by the wayside, and they become unstable. They become people that cannot be reliable, cannot be trusted. And this is why scripture is very consistent to caution the churches to ground themselves in the word of God. What happens in Revelation chapter two is a church that is not grounded in the word of God. They're a church that has some really good things about them, but they've allowed false teaching to come into the church. And it doesn't doesn't just affect their doctrine, but it affects their lifestyle and their morality. Not only because they compromise on what they believe about God, But they also compromise on how they live and how they act. And so John, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, gives them a warning from God to warn them to come back to God's word. And so we'll start Revelation, chapter 2, and verse 18. It says, And the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like Burnished bronze. Now, if you remember the context, John is on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. They're trying to keep him away from preaching the gospel. John is receiving visions from God. And as he's receiving these visions from God, they're all about Jesus' second coming. And as he's writing about Jesus' second coming, he, he then tells these seven churches that he loved, that he knew, that he formerly ministered to, about Jesus and how Jesus is going to come back. And he's all telling these churches, be ready. Now, Five of those seven are not doing so well. Two of them are doing well. The the church of Thyatira was one of the five that wasn't doing so well. And this is why the letter to Thyatira starts off the way that it does. Notice the description. It's the same description that he uses in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. If you remember, Jesus' eyes, his eyes are with flame of fire, and they're looking at this church with really penetrating judgment. God is furious. At how this church has handled His Word. Not only that, but we see another description that actually gives us a little insight of the context of what's happening in Thyatira. He says His feet are like burnished bronze. Now, we, we won't go into Daniel this week because we did the first week, but this again is imagery that comes from the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. And this gives us some insight because what's happening in Thyatira is there's a compromise. There's a compromise on the word of God. Let me tell you a little bit about Thyatira, first of all, so you can understand this compromise. The only other time Thyatira is mentioned in the New Testament is in the book of Acts. When the book of Acts records the church of Philippi beginning, um, it talks about this woman named Lydia, who was a wealthy um, uh, seller of purple materials. And so she was kind of like in the fashion industry. And uh, that's all we know about Thyatira, is this woman who was wealthy, who helped this church out and start. Every church plant needs somebody like that, that has money to help fund it so it can get off the ground. This is what Lydia did. Now, the very little fact that we know about Lydia and church history and what church history says about the uh, city of Thyatira, we know that Thyatira was one known as a business and trade. It was one of the least significant of the seven uh, cities that is mentioned in Revelation 1 through 3. However, it was known for everything sort of comes through Thyatira. Uh, When I was a kid, I had G.I. Joe action figures. I had He-Man. I had anybody know who He-Man is? Okay, good. Some millennials, good. That's good. Um, 30 people, 30-year-old people. I got it. Yeah, you got it. You got me. Um, Thundercats, right? And on the back of these action figures you'd often see, it would say, um, made in Taiwan or made in Tokyo. And as a kid, I was thinking, man, Taiwan in Tokyo must be awesome. This is where all the toys... I remember asking my mom, like, is the North Pole in Tokyo... Like, it seems like this is where toys are made. Like, I don't see any of my G.I. Joe's say made in the North Pole. It says made in Tokyo, made in Taiwan. So my understanding of, like, everything good comes from Tokyo. Everything good comes from Taiwan. This is kind of the way that if you lived in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, in those days, Asia was called what modern-day Turkey is, um, they, would, they would say, okay, everything good comes from Thyrotyra. All the things that are being traded and exported out comes from Thyra. This is what was happening here. But that's what the outside, that's how the outside saw it. But inside the culture, it had its uniqueness to it. It had some strange things that happened because it was a trade city. For instance, if you were part of the the system, you'd have to be part of a trade guild. And a part of what it means to be a part of a trade guild is that you would have to have mandatory social um, occasions or banquets where you would come and actually have be forced to sort of worship in a temple, You'd be forced to worship a a false god. You'd be forced to practice some of the sexual immorality that was encouraged in those times to practice. And no merchant or trader could have to prosper or make money unless he or she was a member of this trade guild. And so you had a decision. Do you want to be a part of the culture and be a part of trade and advance in society and advance in culture? Or are you going to be a believer and war against what culture's saying that you should do and be an outcast and risk, run the risk of being an outcast to society. So this is the, the decision that these believers had to make. Do I become a part of the society, which means I have to be part of the trade deal, which means I have to compromise what I believe and give in to sexual immorality and give in to these religious practices? Or am I going to step back, not be a part of the trade guild, and show that I love Jesus more? And so that was the tension that happens. And for this reason, uh, the the way that John starts off this letter to the church at Thyatira, he he reminds them of what Jesus is like. He says, I want you to remember Jesus is watching you. He's got these fiery eyes and he's looking at you and all the intents of your actions and what you're thinking and what you're doing. Not only that, but he reminds them of his feet. His feet are like burnished bronze. Again, this is uh, imagery of the statue that's found in the book of Daniel. And he's talking about really... um, how unmovable Christ is. Bronze is, uh, first of all, brass is a pure, highly refined in, in fire. Second, secondly, his feet, they emphasize steadfastness because brass was the strongest known uh, metal in the ancient world. What he's saying is, although you're full of compromise... Although Thyatira has these opportunities to give in and to compromise and to be tempted, he says, let me remind you, Jesus and his word is secure. It's unmovable. It's steady. It's faithful. And so if you just read verses 18 and 19, it seems like the church is going really well. You have this message, and of course, we feel like this tension already, this warning, but you look at verse 19, look at what it says. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. See, this is great things, right? What, what are, there's four things they're doing really well. You're you're showing love, you're showing faith, you're showing service, and you're patiently enduring. Patiently enduring means that they, they've really faced some opposition, they faced some trial and suffering, and they've continued to remain as, as a church, they continue to share about Jesus. It talks about their, their love and their faith and their service, some generosity and some warmth that you would have sensed if you would have gone to this church, they would have had an incredible hospitality team and made you feel welcome and made you feel loved and encouraged you and prayed for you. This is the kind of church that Tyra would have felt like. It's kind of, but, but there was something else wrong. You ever had dinner with that couple, and they're just so nice, but they can't be that nice, right? They're, like, nicely weird. Yeah, you, know, you ever had that? You want to see the tour of the house? Sure. Well, this is the kitchen. Oh, it's so beautiful. You want to see the basement? No. You're like, you're too weird. I don't want to go down to the basement, right? I don't want to know what's down there. You're just too weird. You're nice, but you're weird, Right? This is kind of the issue with Thyatira. There was good things that were happening on the outside. There were ways that were expressing generosity and love and care, but there was a major concern that God has. Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So this is the problem. The church has allowed this female to come in and preach and proclaim, and she was a false teacher. And what did it do? It led them to compromise. Now, here's what you need to know. Most likely, her name wasn't actually Jezebel. This is God's way of showing his distaste for her and her teaching and how her teaching has led to bad living. It's kind of like someone, you calling someone a Hitler or a Judas or something bad, a Cowboys fan, whatever you want to pick, something bad. I love you guys. I'm just playing. Jezebel in the Old Testament references the name of the Phoenician wife of Ahab. In 1 Kings chapter 16, it tells us a story that Jezebel was a woman who sought to carry the northern kingdom of Israel into the worship of Baal. And by doing so, she led them into pagan practices and immorality, so Whoever this woman was in Thyatira, God is calling her out and he's calling her Jezebel. He's saying the destruction that you've caused in Thyatira is very similar to this destruction that happened by false teaching and a false prophet in Israel. And these, these um, hearers that were Jewish that would have lived in Thyatira, they would have heard this and they would have been just astounded of this remark. From God. God is calling her this? I can't believe it. Wow, we must take caution of who this lady is or who this woman is. And what, what does he say? She calls herself a prophetess, which means she's not really one. She calls herself one. She's a fake one. What's she doing? She's teaching in a way that leads to immorality, meaning she's presenting a view of God that tolerates sin. And that's the danger. We see the references of sexual morality and food uh, sacrifice to idols. What that's likely referring to is the trade guilds. So what's happening at the trade guilds? She's encouraging people to take part in these religious practices that culture accepted. And she's saying, listen, culture accepts this, the church accepts it. And she would pro- proclaim it as if God was saying that. And that was the danger. And notice even the patience of the Lord in this text. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. In other words, this is an ongoing problem that's happening in the church. There's this lady who's constantly teaching a poor representation of Christ, and the church is also responsible because they are allowing it. And because she doesn't repent, look at what happens. Revelation 2, verse 22, it says, Behold, I will throw her onto her sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your what? Works. God is letting them know I am going to deal with this false teacher. He talks about this sickbed that he's going to allow, allow her to be thrown into, which is really him saying, I'm going to allow her to continue in her sin. I'm not going to stop her. I'm going to allow her to do it. I'm not going to allow it to happen in the church, though. I'm going to throw her out and then hand her over to her sin. And by the way, if you are living your life and God does not stop you from sinning, that's God's wrath on you because that is what's happening to her. And not only that, but you continue to live a life of rebellion toward God, and you live a life of sin that continues to destroy you, and then you await your final judgment, which is eternity in hell. This is God's wrath on this woman who refuses to repent. And by the way, if you're a believer in Christ, he's not going to allow you to continue to sin, to continue to practice sinning. You're going to sin because we're sinners. We live in a fallen world, but you're not going to get better at sinning. You're not going to practice sinning. If you are a believer, sin is something that you enjoy less and less. If you enjoy sin more and more, Scripture gives you no confidence that you really get the gospel. If you don't believe me, let's look at 1 John 3, verse 9. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. What, is, what does the gospel do when the gospel takes root in your heart? When you become a new believer, when you repent of your sins and trust the finished work of Jesus on the cross, he gives you this gift, the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside of you, who makes you more like Jesus, who causes you to fight sin. And by doing so, you hate sin, That's what a believer is, someone who loves God and hates sin. And what he's telling this lady here, this Jezebel, he's saying, look, I'm going to hand her over to her sin, showing she is not a believer. She doesn't know you, doesn't know the Lord. She's not looking after the good of the church. Because the good of the church would be to embrace and hold fast to Scripture and to love Christ. And this is really a a sobering truth that God does not deal kindly with false teachers. If you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, false prophets, false teachers, they're always crushed. Always. And as a pastor, I've had a lot of counseling situations where And I've had some formal training in biblical counseling. Even though I don't claim to be a biblical counselor, I certainly have seen a lot of cases where spiritual abuse and spiritual warfare have happened. And there's people in this church that I love dearly that have been a part of spiritual abuse. They've sat under someone who perhaps was controlling and manipulative, used their power and their position to hurt them and their families. I've had people in this church and have people in this church that they've said under people that have used, that have twisted the Bible to make their voice and their words sound like they're the voice of God. And there there are people in the church that I've seen this happen over and over again. And when that happens, I'm like, I get so angry. Like, I want to find, like, who are these bad guys, right? Let me track them down. I mean, we can get some, a small group leaders together and like give them the right hand of fellowship or something, right? I want to find them and track them down, right? But the reality is this. The punishment that I could possibly conjure up toward anyone who is a false teacher or spiritual abuser will never compare to the uh, fate that awaits them and the punishment and the wrath of God on them. He says, I'm looking at you with fire in my eyes. I am the one who has my feet secure. Your mess will never come against me. you never move the truth of God's word. You'll never win with my people. My people will always endure. And that's the good news of the gospel. We see even, even when Jesus talks to his, to his disciples, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it will be better for him if a milestone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. Jesus does not deal kindly with the false teacher, so you just know that up front. So if you're part of, if you've ever been under a false teacher or someone who's spiritually abused you and you, you want to, to see rat happen, it's going to happen. You have to pray that it doesn't. You'd have to pray that God would intervene and God would stop them from teaching and God would cause repentance. But if it doesn't, there's a destruction there that awaits them. But not only that, the text also allows us to see something else. Notice what he says the very second part of verse 23 he says, And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works God also holds the hearer responsible for what they want what they choose to sit themselves under He's saying okay Thyra Thyra you allowed this person to teach false false words of mine and you also tolerated it and you sat under it and so he is warning them as well and how does he look at their lives? He looks at their lives by how the, what they're being taught, how it produces fruit. He's looking at what happens as a result of what they're taught. And so here's the thing. When it comes down to what kind of teaching we have allowed ourselves to be exposed to and what kind of teaching, how it affects our life, what God is going to look at as our fruit. He's not going to say, okay, um, when, you, when you're in heaven, okay, I want you to recite the Nicene Creed. Tell me um, the Greek alphabet. Tell me the Hebrew alphabet. Tell me, recite this, recite Philippians chapter 1. He's not going to ask you to do that. He's not going to ask you how many theological books that you've read. It's going to come down to your fruit, how your understanding of the gospel and God's word and how it's led to life change and how it's led to you living and acting more like Jesus. This is why Paul is really good with Timothy when he's trying to encourage this young pastor to shepherd and and, and care for the church of Ephesus. He says in 1 Timothy 4, 16, he says, "'Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching.'" Persist in these things, for by doing so, you'll save both yourselves and the hearers. Another way translation of 1 Timothy 4.16 is this. It says, keep your life and doctrine closely. In other words, you can't grow in your relationship with Christ without knowing God. You can't. It's impossible. So you got to read the Word. you got to abide in the Word. you got to know the Word. you got to be growing in the Word. And by the way, just because you know things about the word, it doesn't automatically mean that you're growing because you can know things about the word. And according to what Paul says to Timothy, you can also ignore your life and ignore opportunities to let the word of God speak into your life and then allow the word of God to shape your life. So you can't divorce the two because if you're just knowing the word and you're not growing in the word, you're just growing in self-righteous knowledge. And so this is God's plea for the church of Thyatira. He wants them, hey, come back to the word. Let the word shape your life. Let the word make you more like Jesus. Hide the word in your heart so that you don't sin against God. And he gives an encouraging word to those who are doing it. I love this. 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, he's talking about the false teaching of Jezebel, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Then he says this, hold fast what you have until I come. What is it they have? The word. Hold fast to the word until I come. Friends, if you're tempted and you are challenged to compromise on the gospel compromise on the word he just challenges you to this this truth is unmovable hold fast to it until he comes i love the way paul says this in ephesians chapter 4 verse 9 i'm excuse me philippians chapter 4 verse, verse 9 he says what you have learned and received and and heard and heard and seen in me practice these things and the god Of peace will be with you. He's saying, Hey, what I've taught you, practice, put into action. Many of you are here this morning because you want more information about God. But let me just challenge you with this. That's a wonderful quest. Continue to pursue Christ and your knowledge of Christ, but also don't forget to practice what you already know. And Paul says this in Philippians 4: Practice what you know. He's telling the same thing that he told Timothy: keep your life and doctrine closely. And then he says this, and if you do that, and you endure the hardships that this world will inevitably offer, there's great reward. I love how every single one of these letters, no matter how sharp God is or how frustrated God is with these churches, he always says, if you overcome this, if you fight through this, if you endure in this way, there's a reward. What's the reward if you hold fast to the word? Verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my word works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with an iron rod as when uh, earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. And then here's our encouragement this morning, Integrity Church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, which is saying this truth is for us just that it is for them. And what is the, what is the encouragement? What's the reward? Well, he says that we'll get, he'll give authority over the nations. This is what Jesus told his disciples. They'll actually ha- reign in the same way that Jesus reigns. We'll, we'll reign over the world as believers in Christ. We will have that sort of authority that with him, and not only that, but he says uh, it will be like Jesus will be uh, will be like broken pieces against a clay pot against iron, which means everything that tries to come against Christ, everything that tries to counterfeit God's word will be broken and shattered because God's word is unmovable and secure and 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 um, steady. But not only that, he says he gives us the morning star. What's the morning star? The morning star is actually Jesus. He says, you get the greatest gift of all, Jesus. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, you have Jesus. You've understood that God sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross for your sins. He rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty that we deserve. And you put your faith and trust in him. You surrendered your life to him. You're a new believer. So you have Christ. But you have him already, but not yet. You have a relationship with Christ here, but you don't know what it's like to fully be in his presence. We know what it's like to be in the presence of God because we are around believers in Christ and we can come together and worship Christ. And so in a sense, we're in the presence of Christ, but not in the full sense that we'll see it one day. And honestly, like this is one of my biggest struggles with reading scripture. I don't know how to describe heaven. I don't think we can get it from an eight-year-old guy, kid who says he died and went there, by the way. I don't think we can do that. I think God is intentionally vague about it. Because I don't think that there are words that could describe it. Like, I think when we think about heaven, we often put our cultural understanding of it or the way we've seen it in movies. And so, like, we're floating on clouds and all of a sudden, like, I'm I'm jacked. I've got muscles, right? Um, my red beard turns to white. Or no, everyone has red hair because it's heaven. And, like, so you have that. And then, like, you know, James Earl Jones is God. You know, it's like all these things that we have that we put in that our culture has told us what heaven is like. And so we put that in. So it's harder for us to understand it. But I don't think we can put it into words. I think everything that we've enjoyed in this world uh, will be multiplied in Christ in heaven. That we can't even fully understand it or comprehend it. And this is the point that he's making. Hey, look. As you're getting tempted and you have all these things in front of you, Church of Thyatira, I want you to remember, stay firm in God's word because, hey, your reward is far greater. You're going to get Jesus. You're going to get to live with Jesus forever. And then when you see Jesus and you're fully in his presence, you're going to say, every time I said no to sin and I said yes to God, it was worth it. Look at what I said yes to. All the satisfaction and the joy that I've ever wanted, all the places in my heart, all the cracks in my heart where I long for more, it's found right here in Christ. That is what you'll see one day in heaven. That is the confidence that you can have to press on and move forward and endure and hold fast to God's word. Tim Keller does a great job describing this in his book um, on prayer called Prayer. Um, (laughs) Love Tim Keller books, they're just like prayer. Um, His book on preaching, it's called Preaching. I mean, so. But he does a great job uh, describing this tension that we face. He says, imagine an eight-year-old boy playing with the truck, and then it breaks. He's inconsolable, and he cries out to his parents to fix it. Yet, as he's crying, his father says to him, Son, a distant relative that you've never met has died and left you $100 million. What would the child's reaction be? Tim Keller says, he will just cry louder until his truck is fixed. He does not have enough cognitive capacity to realize his true condition and be consoled. And Tim Keller says, in the same way, Christians lack the spiritual capacity to realize all we have. And I'll add, all we will have in Jesus. Friends, we don't understand all that awaits us, but we know that we, when we see it, we'll see that it's a- absolutely worth it. And there will be many Jezebels in our life that will try to steer us away from that truth, that want us to compromise, want us to say that sin is better than Christ. I can imagine that in this culture, and this, this woman, Jezebel, that God calls her was likely very smart, incredibly kind, compelling, attractive, easy to follow. But the reward for falling into temptation in that way was short-lived, and it ultimately led to their destruction. God's word leads to life, and it leads us to Jesus Christ. And that's the encouragement that we have this morning. And if we aren't careful, we can fall into the same trap this church fell into. We can allow what seems more and attractive to entice us. Even our view of Scripture can be skewed by what we want. We allow our emotions to rule what Scripture says. We can allow our experiences to trump our interpretation of God's Word. We can even use our own reason to avoid its truth. But friends, when we do that, we compromise and we're prone to sin, and we lose sight of what awaits us in Christ. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. So, believer, all I can tell you this morning is hold fast, keep your life and your doctrine closely. The band's going to come up here as I'm, I want to lead this song. As the band comes, or lead the song, I'm not leading a song. <laughs> not leading a song. I want to leave you. With these words of scripture this morning. And allow this word to be a prayer for you. This is Hebrews chapter 3. I'll start in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in evil in an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But what does he tell them? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. That none of you may be hardened by, deceit, by the deceitfulness of sin. Then he says this. This is our hope and our prayer for Integrity Church. For we have come to share in Christ if, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The only way, Integrity Church, that will endure the only way that we'll make an impact here in Greenville and throughout the world for the sake of the gospel, if we hold our original confidence until the end. What's our original confidence? The gospel and God's word. May that be us this morning. God help us. Let us pray.